Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent. And down the line from Tokyo, we have Michio Nakamoto. This week, we'll be discussing the Bank of England and the appointment of Mark Carney, the Canadian central banker, as the new governor of the Bank of England. Next, we'll look at LIBOR and the latest developments in the rate-rigging scandal. And finally, on to Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi. And the news there that an interview with the FT has revealed the chief executive holding concerns about the state of Japanese government bond investment. First, though, to the Bank of England. Daniel, last week we had the surprise news, at least to most, that Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of Canada, had been appointed governor of the Bank of England as of the middle of next year. I say surprising because we thought he was not in the race. The FT reported a few months ago that he'd been approached by the government over this job, but he seemed to rule himself out so comprehensively that everyone had taken their eye off him. And yet then he emerged as the man. I suppose the key question for listeners to Banking Weekly is what the market thinks of Mark Carney. I think the appointment of Mark Carney has been greeted by the market with some very positive reactions because there was the feeling that what the Bank of England needs is somebody who can come in and shake things up from a governance perspective as well as from the way the Bank of England acts. And that's actually one of the things that played against the other who the we thought was the, the leading job. candidate, yeah. Paul Tucker, who's the deputy to Sir Mervyn King. So there was also a big push from the government and the feeling that what the Bank of England needed was somebody from outside to change some of the things. Uh, so the he, Bank of he, he certainly ticks that box of being yeah. an outsider. He's also pretty well respected. Um, yes, and that, that's the other thing. I, I think that's also why the government was so interested in wooing him to come to London, which took them some time to convince him, actually, Clearly, which yeah. is why he was saying a few months ago that he didn't want to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he really I- indeed ticks all the boxes. He, he was head of the Bank of Canada in a country that steered through the crisis much better than others, yeah. and that has been praised for its prudential regulation yeah. of its banks that helped the, the banks weather the crisis better. He wasn't actually directly responsible for prudential regulation, but yeah, in an indirect kind of way he was. Yeah. Yeah. And also his background is very interesting and made him a leading candidate because he's he used to work for Goldman Sachs, so, so he knows the banking world very well. And he's also an academic. So he's sort of really has got a very diverse, uh, broad background. And Plus, he's been for some time now the, the chairman of the Global Financial Stability Board, which yes. oversees bank regulation above the famous Basel Committee. So, yeah, yes. as you say, he ticks all the boxes. Do you expect his arrival to change much in terms of the other people around him? Paul Tucker, for example, what happens to him? That's actually the big question mark right now. Obviously, he was 
the leading contender. Yeah, and pretty widely respected, actually, yeah, as yeah, the financial where, stability expert. Yeah, he is, bank. yeah. The, the question is, will he remain at the Bank of England or will he go elsewhere? He actually didn't really answer the question. Yes, I was at the press conference <laughs> last, last week, week where yeah. he was he was there to talk about a completely different topic, which we should touch yeah. on in a minute, That's, around prudential regulation of UK banks. But he, he dodged the question yeah. as to whether he would see out his contract. And that's the question, what does he want to do now? You know, is he, does he feel passed over and he wants to go somewhere else now? But also, obviously, the question what Mark Carney wants to do, does he want to bring in somebody else, some of his own troops? What, what sort of changes will he trigger himself? Another Canadian, perhaps, who knows? We should have a, a final quick word on, on the press conference that I mentioned, which was basically to announce the Financial Policy Committee. This is this kind of sister organisation to the Monetary Policy Committee to announce the FPC's latest report on the stability of Britain's banks. And they went further than they have gone before, down the route of saying Britain's banks need potentially more capital. By reading between the lines, you can come, come up with a number of as high as 50 billion that they think the banks may need. And now the Financial Services Authority is going to go away over the next couple of months and work with the banks on ways in which the banks could be recapitalized. Although I think most people in the city felt that actually the FPC had backed away a little bit from their more hawkish noises of recent months, especially around not forcing the banks to raise equity per se. Yeah, and I think some of the bank's capital ratios are not too far away from the timescale. I mean, if I think about RBS, I think they're already at... They're at about 11.1, I think, under Basel II. Yeah. Although they're the lowest of all the banks, they're kind of still... What all the banks would say is that they're way ahead of other banks in the world, including continental European banks. But what it obviously nevertheless does, it creates a lot of noise around them and it does increase the pressure for them again, to rethink non-core operations. Non-core and, operations, and they, absolutely. You know, I mean, RBS, for instance, again, they, you know, there's been always been speculation about whether they should sell citizen operations, which they always yeah. said they, they don't want to. But obviously, there's going to be renewed pressure on them yeah. uh, and, and renewed noise around them of, and, f- and speculation about them doing such... Absolutely. You know, going, and from an investor point of view, I suppose the messages are mixed as well. You might get more solid banks, but the chances of them paying big dividends anytime soon are rapidly going going out the window as they're encouraged to hold on to that capital instead. We should move on to our second topic, LIBOR, the long-running rate-rigging scandal, which has already seen Barclays last summer settle with regulators on both sides of the Atlantic for £290 million, is back in the news. Deutsche Bank last week took a provision for potential settlement, which obviously suggests it's quite close. Where are we at with that and other settlements? It was quite... An interesting development because under accounting rules, obviously, you only take a provision when you think something's very likely going to materialize. So, yeah. so and basically, how much did they take, by the way? Well, they didn't say that. It was actually that was the thing. It only emerged from a parliamentary hearing in Berlin, where Stefan Leitner, who's the head of compliance and legal at Deutsche Bank, mm. was talking about to members of parliament about LIBOR, and he mentioned in passing yeah. that they've uh, made these provisions, and he didn't specify how much so, so so we'll find out with the annual I, results yeah i, I presume so we, we we should do yeah by which and, time maybe they'll have settled anyway yeah indeed, yeah typically if if a bank takes such a provision it would suggest that it's not too far away so i would say it, it's very likely that in the next few months we will see something so that's deutsche then we we know rbs rbs has made no secret really of the fact that they're very keen to settle hope to do so by the end of the year that may or may not 
happen and we think probably a similar or maybe even higher settlement cost than Barclays. And then there's UBS as well. Yeah, UBS is an interesting one because they said publicly back in August that they are not in settlement talks and that they don't think they will be entering settlement talks anytime soon. But our understanding now is that that may, yeah. they may still not be in talks per se, but they've certainly it, made a long, yeah, a, a great deal of progress. It definitely has changed quite a lot. And my feeling is that they had a number of other issues they had to deal with first. I mean, one thing was they obviously had the trial against Quaker Adeboli, the rogue trader. Yep. And immediately after the trial, the fine by the FSA because of the rogue trading scandal. Yep. So that, that was a big thing they had to deal with. And they had their the big other, restructuring as yeah, well. Yeah, the other massive thing was yeah. the, the, the big restructuring, uh, you know, getting out of large parts of fixed income and, yep. and 10,000 job cuts, which they announced a few weeks ago. So with that being out of the way, Axel Weber, the new chairman, as well as Sergio Motti, the, the chief executive, are now free to deal with this issue in a much faster way than they could do from, from a management attention point of view in, in the last few months. Well, we will keep keep our eyes out for both news from UBS and Deutsche over the next few days and weeks. Our final topic for the day is Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi. I'm joined on the line by Michio Nakamoto our correspondent in Tokyo. Hi, Michio. Thanks very much for joining us. We interviewed the chief executive of BTMU over the weekend, and he made some quite interesting comments about the bank's exposure to Japanese government bonds, JGBs. Were you surprised by what he said? He he was basically highlighting the level of exposure and, and that this is one of the key issues for investors. Yes, I think it was slightly surprising in the sense that Japanese banks have really been at pains to quell any concerns about this issue. And Mr. Hirano himself has also mentioned that BTMU is not actually that worried about the situation. So it was a bit surprising that he expressed this, although I do think he's recognizing that analysts are concerned about it, investors are concerned about it, even the regulators have expressed worries about the situation. Just to put it in context then, what what are people worried about exactly? Because the traditional thinking, I suppose, around government bonds was that this would be a safe investment for banks to be in. That whole mentality has been shaken in Europe, obviously, by the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. In Japan, I suppose the issue is both around growing nervousness around the macroeconomic situation in Japan, plus also there's a far greater exposure, isn't there, locally to to sovereign bonds among the banks than there is in most other countries? Yes. The banks hold about 40 plus percent of all JGBs, and JGBs make up 900 percent of their tier one capital. Yeah, Uh, which is an astonishing number compared to, I mean, I I know the figure for the UK banks, for example, is about 25 percent. So 900 percent is is concerning, I suppose, especially if you believe there's, there's an issue with the sovereign. Right. Although the banks themselves don't believe that. So, so yes, what is the, right. the, the kind of corollary of that is that they're such an important force in the investment market for, for these bonds that they are stuck. I mean, that's what Mr. Harano was saying to us in the interview was that although analysts and investors are signaling concern about this, however much he might want to mitigate that, there's very little 
room for manoeuvre, really, because as such large investors, they can't really sell down aggressively because it would destabilise the market and be counterproductive. That's right. And uh, uh, BTMU, the uh, main bank in the Mitsubishi UFJ financial group, is one of the largest holders with 40 trillion yen. However, there's an even larger holder, which is the Japan Post Bank. Japan Post Bank has about 146 trillion yen of JGBs and accounts for a massive 33% wow. of the market. This is the bank that, you know, Mrs. Watanabe way out in rural Japan. Yes, <laughs> your average consumer, so, absolutely. So how, how is this going to pan out then, you think? Completely counter to all these concerns, the actual signals in the market around the stability of, of Japanese government bonds have been relatively encouraging, haven't they? Yields have been coming down. Yields have been very, very low. And the banks argue that they have done their risk analyses and they do not envision a scenario of rapidly rising interest rates. They say, although they will not explain in detail uh, what their strategy is, they do say that they have it all mapped out. So it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, some analysts argue that as soon as the economy starts to grow and banks start to find more profitable lending, for example, in real estate, they'll start to sell their JGBs and, and shift their funds over there. But and BTMU, of course, is, is quite interesting in the sense that they've, along with several other Japanese banks, have been prioritizing international growth, haven't they? That's, that's largely been an attempt to offset the largely stagnant lending market in, in Japan and boost growth by spotting the gaps in, in the global market that have been left by retrenching European banks, particularly. And BTMU yeah. is actually one of the reasons why we were interviewing uh, Mr. Hirano was, was because of that push, particularly into project finance, for example. So I guess that is the story. Uh, if they can accomplish that ambition, then uh, it should help them longer term. I guess the, the question is how they can balance the shift and, and manage it in an orderly way. Yeah, it's a big investment portfolio that they uh, it's going to take. Like a, a giant tank is going to take That's a long right. time to turn around. Michio, thank you very mm -hmm. much for joining us. That's been most enlightening. That's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Daniel here in the studio and Michio down the line in Tokyo for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.